tonight on Love and Respect as we celebrate the life and legacy of Dr. King Jr., a conversation with Dr. King's youngest child, Bernice King. It's a legacy of how do we not lose ourselves, but how do we create coexistence in a, in a world of such great differences? Um, and, and, and how do we do it in a way that we can have dignity at the end of the day? Bernice King, coming up right now. My guest tonight is the youngest child of Coretta Scott King and Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., whom we celebrate this week. She honors his life and legacy as the CEO of the King Center here in Atlanta. Also co-author, It Starts With Me, Dr. Bernice King. Thank you. I'm glad to be here with you. I'm glad you are a legend. So let me say, if everybody who says I'm here nervous fellow today. Doug. Yeah, Astro. Astro, fellow Astro, Astro should I say. Shouts out to Dr. Butts and Dr. Hill. Yes. They, they provided an oh, environment in which you understood <laughs> without struggle there's no progress. Exactly. So for people who don't know, we're, um, we're from Atlanta, which is known as a black city. It's a city in which your father was educated at a school called Booker T. Washington mm -hmm. High School, which educated most of the black educators I encountered at Collier Heights Elementary and later Frederick Douglass. There's an over 100-year, even before your father in the 50s, um, establishment of civil rights pushing mm -hmm. movement, whether it was John Wesley Dobbs or um, Booker T. Washington um, here in the early 1900s. You and I stand on the shoulders of a lot of people who have come before us. And that can be very scary. It can be very polarizing, even within our own community. And you've managed to do an amazing job. I watched you for over 25 years of mm -hmm. my life, next to your mother, and then later there even while she was alive, but alone, pushing the line on depolarizing, making sure that we don't become separate communities here and nationally. Um, wh why? Why does it matter to you in the way that it sincerely seems to matter? Um, why don't you go off and hide? And just <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, I tried that when I was much younger. It mm -hmm. didn't work because mm -hmm. uh, it kept looking for me. Every time I turned up, people either calling on me, yeah. you know, expecting something from me. And it's in, it's in the, it's, I think it's just in our bloodline, our legacy. When you talked about uh, Washington High School, Absolutely. it was my great-grandfather, A.D. Williams, who fought for that school to exist. Wow. And a lot of people don't know that. They think... Martin Luther King Jr. appeared, but he came from a lineage of activists out of, out of the black community from my, that grand grandfather, that great grandfather was my father's maternal uh, uh, grandfather. Yes. Um, and then, of course, his father, Daddy King, yes. you know, fought for the equalization of teacher salaries, you know, the integration of elevators. Um, he was a part of the the uh, Citizens Trust Bank, the founding Absolutely. board. Um, so it, it was around me. Yes. And I couldn't escape it. Yes. So it, it's, you know, mother instilled in me. But one thing that's a beauty is she never forced us. Never forced She always said in our home, you don't have to be daddy and you don't have to be me. But whatever you do, be your best self. But she instilled so much in us and she raised us with the King Center. You, you're, you <laughs> have and have been given credit for great oratorical skills. I mean, literally grand. You're one of the speakers that I watch to say, well, what did you do? It's people like you, Senator Nina Turner, are just amazing spokespeople and spokeswomen in particular. Um, so you kind of get it set up. Well, she's Dr. King's daughter, she's supposed to. Mm -hmm. but, but you have a grace and a mm -hmm. dignity that does not just come from your father, that I saw your mother. I oh, knew her. Yeah. I saw her walk in with a room 
with dignity. I saw her and Betty Shabazz sitting together, and I want to talk about their relationship later. But could you talk about that grace that you have, the oratorical skills that you've chosen to use for the greater good, and the balance that your father and mother, and even to her father, I might like to hear about, because as I hear it, he was a peace-loving man. Yeah, well, see, I had to go on a journey, and I fight with it every day to deal with my anger. I mean, you know, deep-seated anger um, at some points in my life to the point of rage. Yeah. Uh, and I've seen the manifestation of that and what it could potentially do. And I recognize that I had to get that in control. Yeah. Uh, and watching how my mother dealt with adversarial situations. You know, she used to always tell me, I'm not going to dignify everything. Yeah. And that's why when people say things, you know, on social media, there are times when I don't. Yeah. Because if I dignify it, I elevate their platform. Yeah. So you have to weigh, is it something so heavy that I need to address it truthfully and hit it and move? Uh, or is it something you just ignore and let it, you know, go on its way? Uh, so it's, it's been a, a discipline over time to learn how to manage emotions so they don't get out of control. Yeah. Um, because emotions can run me. <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> but I remember I had to tell the story from my mom because this is where it really, you're right, this is where it came from. I mean, obviously my father, but I didn't have the benefit of experiencing that. You were robbed uh, because of that I was right. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. I was only five. But I was riding down 166 here in Atlanta. Um, and I was so angry about something and I was talking to my mom about it and I was getting ready to make this decision. Um, and she just stopped me in the middle of the conversation and she said, baby, never make a decision in your anger. And it just, it arrested my attention and it's been with me since then because I was getting ready to make a decision. Had I made that decision, I would have later regretted it. Yeah. You know, and she was just trying to tell me, you know, get through that. Cause you, you're going to be, the Bible says it, be angry, but sin not. Yeah. Um, and so get through the anger and get to another space because you, you have that capacity. Uh, and then make, you may still come out at the same place. Yeah. But at least it'll be more thought out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe you'll have a plan to go with it. Because most times when we act like that out of emotion, we don't have a plan. It's yeah. just emotional. Yeah. Ain't no intellect in it anywhere. <laughs> my father said, he, he warned me, he saw I had his temperament and my mother's temperament very early. And he said, you know, Son, don't, I don't want to see you anger because anger leads to madness and madness leads to violence. Oh, yeah. And if your mother, so you say about, you talk about your mother invoking that spirit and you actually quoting, you know, anger but sin not is, I'm gonna keep that one the rest of my days. <laughs> but her father, mm. um, in, in many ways, was the living, thriving example um, of, the, of the type of man she would. Eventually, so, absolutely, that's amazing, right? So, from there. so fathers, fathers matter. I just saw the oh, dads yeah. out there. Go, oh, dad. Yeah. So Coretta Scott King, whom I knew and saw the dignity and grace, I've seen it in her daughter. What was her father like? And and one example I I read, which captivated me, was he was he you, his home was burned down. Mm -hmm. I'm sure, no doubt, by poor white folks, right? Right. Burned down, and he chose to have his family pray. What was your grandfather's name, and, and where were they in Alabama? Obi Scott, uh -huh. and uh, it was actually um, called Highburger. Highburger. But they they claim it as Mary in Alabama, which is Perry <laughs> County. Okay. Incidentally, Perry County is the county where uh, uh, my father's wife, Coretta Scott King, Andrew Young's wife, yeah. uh, Jean Charles Young, yes. and and uh, Ralph David Abernathy's wife, Juanita yeah. Abernathy. Uh, grew up. They were born and grew up in Perry County. They grew some great women. So, yeah. So it's about, about about an hour 
from Selma, yeah. an hour and a few minutes, um, um, and in between Birmingham and Montgomery, about an uh, hour and half, hour 45 minutes. Yeah. But my grandfather, um, very special man, I mean, short, yeah. no taller than about 5'6", five, 5'7", five, um, but had a lot of strength, yeah. courage, and faith, and dignity because you're right, uh, he was... His, he was he was an entrepreneur, yeah. it, you know, in that time. You know, he had his own truck and he was hauling lumber, the only black in his town doing that. A lot of jealous white folks and, you know, back in the 20s and the teens of 1900, uh, black people weren't supposed to be living that way. Yeah. But he had a vision and a determination um, and he didn't let anything stop him. So when that happened, he didn't want that to control because he had a vision about where he was going. Yeah. So when he told them come together and pray, yeah. you know, he was basically saying, we, we're going to pray because we're going to make it through this because we know th there's a God of the universe and it's going to give me the strength yeah. to keep leading my family. And I don't want them to be bitter yeah. at, because, you know, they're still young. Yeah. So what we're going to say, we're not going to hate anybody by this. And so that was the first incident. But the other thing is, my grandfather used to get stopped all the time on the road by white men. And they would just put a gun straight to his face. Mm -hmm. And he told my mother, always look a white man in the eyes. Because he, he did that every time, and it was intimidating. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather dealt with that day after day, and it caused my mother to grow up and learn to live in fear for the ones that she loved. So by the time the movement came, yeah. she had already experienced this over and over with her, yeah. with her uh, husband, uh, and she was prepared. Um, and uh, she, she, she took those lessons with her, you know, about looking in the eyes yeah. and not cowering like that. Absolutely. And my grandfather lived to be 99. That's amazing. Because <laughs> he could have been taken out of here at any point. So, Obie Scott. Obie Scott. Man, so, he, 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 he had a truck. Yes. Then he, tried, he opened his own uh, lumber mill, and yeah. that got burned down. Yeah. But he kept going, and then he ended up um, building their home, yeah. their new home, and opening what today would be a gas store convenience station. That's amazing. So, so much like the legacy of people we know, your father's legacy stands on the regular working class legacy of people like Obie Scott, whose daughter married your father. Yes. And I'm sure brought some balance to some rage he must have felt because growing up a middle class black kid in Atlanta, you're not used to some of the stuff you experience in Alabama. And that's speaking from personal experience yeah. as a working class kid. <laughs> you know, Tuskegee's yeah. a far different place. One is right, but you just like, it's just us now here. Yeah. But <laughs> I, um, your father's legacy has been defined by many people, and mostly for what their uses are at the time. You've been a walking, living example to me of Martin and Coretta's legacy in a different way. How do you define it? To me, it's a much truer way to what your father wanted, because you don't just stop at racial harmony. You don't stop at just voting rights. You push the line on making human beings be more in touch with human beings, with another, and what justice really is. So how do you define your father's legacy from your perspective? Well, I, I think my father uh, was trying to, to, to leave behind a, a legacy of understanding um, the fact that we are a human family with all of our frailties, with all of our differences, with all of our, um, you know, injustices, shortcomings, everything you can think of. Uh, but he always felt that there was a spark of the divine in every human being, even the ones who acted in evil ways. Um, he never was... Uh, naive though. Yeah. He, he knew that some people would never transform, yeah. you know, but he didn't want those people to cause him to become something other than 
his best self. Yeah. And so that's why he, you know, formulated this philosophy of nonviolence because he felt like, how do we get there and not damage and destroy people? And, and I think it, it really came out of, this is, this is something I came up with recently. My father had a white friend when he was three, four, five years of age, two of them. Their parents owned a store across the street from the home on Auburn Avenue. And he played with them every day. You know, kids, mm -hmm. you know, they're not thinking about you're white. What problems? Are, they don't even think yeah. about our problems in the world. Um, they just, you know, they just want to connect, yeah. have fun, and, and do whatever they do. Uh, and one day, when it was time for him to go to uh, um, primary school, um, and they were going as well, the parents suddenly said, they can't play with you anymore. So he was confused. Like, what is this about? So he went home, and that's when my grandmother laid it all out. Slavery, segregation, Jim Coryism, everything, and said, but you're as good as anyone. Um, and from that point, I think he was inspired to reunite with his friend. Not literally, but symbolically. He was on a pursuit to reconnect because something had been torn away from him. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a legacy of how do we not lose ourselves, but how do we create coexistence in a, in a world of such great differences? Um, and, and, and how do we do it in a way that we can have dignity at the end of the day? The underwhelmed part of his legacy is the economic piece. Yes. I mean, it frustrates me that most times when you read children's books, you know, or when you see documentaries, they stop at 65 with yeah. the voting rights. Then they skip to his uh, assassination. They don't deal with the Poor People's Campaign, but even before the Poor People's Campaign, they don't deal with Operation Breadbasket. When you talk about your father symbolically wanting to reunite, somebody's at home is going to say, oh, I just want to reunite my white folks, but it's not what you're saying. No. You're saying that the Poor People's Campaign it recognized everyone's humanity at the right. same. It recognized that essentially you have government and other factors that mm -hmm. can use and manipulate, and then that unification, much like the Rainbow Coalition, started by Fred Hampton, it sought all out in order to push forward right. and later taken up by Jesse Jackson's sort. So could you talk about the Poor People's Campaign and Operation Breadbasket? I'm going to start with Operation Breadbasket uh -huh. because um, that was based off of the respect. You know, dignity was the core of, of my father's work, mm -hmm. you know, treating us with dignity. Um, and, and that's not just in words, that's yeah. in actions, that's in, 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 in opportunities, that's in access. And, and so uh, they started Operation Breadbasket as the economic arm of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference gotcha. uh, to confront uh, businesses, corporations at that time about hiring more black people, yeah. promoting more black people, yeah. and paying black people on par with white people. Yeah. Uh, and they said, if, if you, if you uh, respect my dollar, you have to respect me. Otherwise, we're going to do economic withdrawal. Yeah. And that's essentially what they did in several states across the country. And it's an undertold story. Yeah. Um, and, and so Atlanta, as an example, they added $25 million back then to the economy of, it, of black Atlanta. Yeah. Now, today, that's probably somewhere in the $250, $300 million. That's significant. Yeah. That's something to be noted at a time when it was very difficult. We didn't have, you know, entertainers that, you know, the, the number of them. We didn't have people in, you know, um, uh, all these other professions yeah. that paid very well, that pay very well. Uh, and so that was Operation Breadbasket. They, what they did is they called on the company to say, okay, what's, what's your stats? Yeah. If the stats didn't reflect 
the community. And yeah. that's important today. Yeah. When you think about that, all of these corporations that are set up across America, do they reflect the racial stats of their, uh, the, where, where they're doing business? Yes. A lot so of Georgia them don't. Georgia would be 35%. A lot of them don't. Yeah. So they were like, okay, this is what needs to happen. And they made these demands. Yeah. And if they did not meet the demands, they negotiated with them. You know, you can put a timetable. You can, you can compromise on timetables as long as it's not ridiculous. Yeah. But we're not going to compromise on the fact that this has to be done. Yeah. And so they would put a timetable, and if they didn't do it, economic withdrawal. And they did it, and it impacted many companies at the time. In fact, I don't want, I know, it's probably not safe to say this, but... Go, go for uh, it. On April, 4, <laughs> April 3rd, when Dad's had his last words, they were getting ready to, to, to boycott Coca-Cola. He said it. He said it and, and, and been to the mountaintop wow. speech. Go back and listen to it. Having known in, in, in my community and participated in um, both the Christian um, religion, both the religion of Islam when I was younger, Learn, you learn that there's a lot of commonality there. Mm -hmm. um, Jesus is mentioned a lot in the Quran, too, people should know. Mm -hmm. But what I've noticed about Abrahamic religions is that in terms of institutions, sometimes they advocate for the polarization. Yeah. And your father advocated for a beloved community. Mm -hmm. And religion, in my opinion, gets kind of left at the door yeah. in terms of having to be right, more so than having to be principled. Um, your father was a principled man. Malcolm was a principled man. Your mother, Dr. Betty Shabazz, principal people. What is the beloved community to you now? What does it look like? Who's invited to be a part of it? How do we, you know, how do we keep invoking it? How do we grow it and spread it? Because, again, I told you, I start following you religiously. Like, I go, when I, waking up feeling hopeless, I go directly <laughs> to your IG. <laughs> and, and this is you where I get inspiration You know what gives me from. hope? I'm just going to say this to you. If you read the Bible, the word remember comes up a whole lot. Okay. And I think sometimes we get amnesia in the world. If, if you remember that there have been generations before you yeah. and what they were able to endure and come through and accomplish and hand to us, yeah. it gives me hope. It does. Yeah. And it gives me strength to know that I can do what I need to do in my generation. I'm not going to do it all. I'm going to yeah. do as much as I can. We have to create circumstances that are just and equitable. And we have to do it with a heart of compassion and care. And conflict will be there. It's yeah. not this utopia where, hey, we don't have conflict and tension. Yeah. But we learn how to work through that tension in a way that at the end of the day, there's accountability you know, there's rest, because a lot of people talk about re reconciliation without restoration and, and what, whatever other things, reparation that has to happen in the process. Um, but that word dignity runs throughout it and love dries every, everything, you know. Um, Is faith essential? I'm not, faith. not religious faith, but faith yeah, that, oh yeah. that we as human yeah. beings are divine we, beings. Well, first something. of all, but that we can create this kind of community. Gotcha. I mean, that's gotcha. very essential because <laughs> gotcha. most people think it's a utopia. Gotcha. What's missing right now, which puzzles me, we have the capacity to solve everything that we're faced with in this world. We do. Our will is in the way. We have to build the will to, to do, do it, it and get the self-centeredness out of the way and, and become a little more other-centered. You don't deny a healthy sense of self, yeah. but we we can we get a little bit more narcissistic in our, you know, self care, um, and and so yeah. So I've noticed <laughs> that in public office, right? The people who I saw on a local level when I was younger were people like 
your father's late comrades, I mean, your late father's comrades, Andy Young, Hosea Williams. Mm -hmm. Hosea was on city council. He was, he was, he was ready to burn the house down on any weekly oh, yeah. basis yeah, he was. for how Kurt Blue was being treated. And yeah, <laughs> exactly. I could talk to you forever, but I have to, I have to, I have to rap. Um, and in my rapping, there was a, an amazing tweet, again, because I follow you, that I put, gave you the choices of a few, but this is the one I was hoping you picked, and you picked it, because your voice to me invokes a call to action by God himself and herself. I need you to please read this tweet for my audience so that we can okay. hear it, and it's on record forever. Kindness matters, but kindness does not equal justice. Unity matters, but calls for unity are often about maintaining an unjust status quo. Civility matters, but civility without justice equals false peace. We need true peace, which includes justice. Let's unite for that. Absolutely. Thank you for being who you are. Thank, thank you, you for carrying the legacy of your mother and your father. Um, thank you for calling for unification in the age of polarization. And I appreciate you for being a shining example of something that's valuable toward for me. And thank you. Thank You're you an inspiration, so too. I to appreciate you. Yes, you are. <laughs> thank you. You've been on love thank and respect, you. and hopefully it won't be your last time. What's up, y'all? This is Clint Coley, and I'm the host of the Music is a Love Language podcast. Now, check this out. If you're a fan of music podcasts, then be sure to check out and subscribe to Music is a Love Language podcast. We are a podcast that has honest conversations about music all day, every day. If you like to argue music, this is the podcast you want to be listened to. And it's brought to you exclusively by the Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip-hop and powered by creators. Again, Make sure you guys follow and subscribe. Music is a love language podcast. I'm Clint Coley. Hope to have your ear soon.